Last summer, we made the decision to spend our summers making our way through the Psalms, one at a time, starting at Psalm 1. And so as we re-enter the Psalms, we are landing where we left off last summer uh, with Psalm 15. And before we get into that, let me ask you to imagine a scenario with me. If you've been watching Stranger Things, this is the upside down, okay? Your Sunday morning began like most other Sunday mornings. Uh, You got to sleep in a little bit, and it was glorious. And if you're living with people in your house, they were quiet, and it was a peaceful morning. You enjoyed some rare, cool Birmingham air this morning, and you drank coffee slowly, and maybe you read a little bit, and it was just lovely. And then everybody got ready for church on time. It was amazing. And you all got on the road and you came in. And when you pulled on to 7th Street, there was a parking spot available right in front of the church. I mean, and one that you didn't have to back into, you could just pull right in. I mean, it was like, this is the morning we all dream of every Sunday morning, right? And as you turned the corner and you started to approach the double doors to walk into this church, you were startled to see that there were men in suits, standing outside. We don't wear suits at Red Mountain Church. This is odd. And as you got closer, you realized that they were turning some people away and letting others in. And as you got to the door, one of them turned toward you and started asking you questions about what your week has looked like and about the kind of person you are. And you realized that these people were assessing whether you were the type of person who belonged in this space worshiping God. How would you respond to something like that? Some of you were cringing just now as I was telling that story. It runs counter to everything we know about Jesus, right? I mean, everything we believe about the gospel runs counter to that scenario. And yet I bring that up because there are some who think that the psalm that we're about to read is telling us just that. That it reads like a sort of entrance liturgy that operated outside the God's tabernacle where you would have priests standing there asking you penetrating, heart-exposing questions to determine if you could enter into worship with God's people. Now, I don't think the temple operated that way. There's nothing I've ever read that indicates that that could be true. And I think the nature of the song betrays that idea completely. But what we do have when we look at this is the type of picture that God gives us about what the faithful, blameless person looks like as they enter into worship. It celebrates the ideal worshiper, and it gives us a picture of the type of people that God desires for us to become. So let's look together. This is Psalm 15. I'll read all five verses of this very long psalm. Hear the word of the Lord. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, And does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. 
in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put money out, does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Uh, just as you have been among us uh, so far, I pray that you, your presence will be moving and stirring in our hearts over these next few minutes, that you might help us to hear your word, to learn of you, to be emboldened to follow you, and that you might help me to speak with love and gentleness to these friends and to honor you, our Father, with the words that I say. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? What's going on here? Well, the psalmist is asking the question, the same question I was proposing to you earlier, who who indeed might be fit to enter worship with God? And the tent that's referenced in verse 1 is the tabernacle that the ark of God lived in before the temple was built. Solomon built the temple. When David brought the Ark of God into Jerusalem, it was housed in a tent. Some of you remember we looked at that several weeks ago. And the holy hill that he's talking about is Mount Zion. That's where the tabernacle dwelt, and that's where the temple was built, and that's where it was set up after David became king. And the words sojourn and dwell in this verse point to more than just a visit, like we visit and worship or to perform a sacrifice. The psalmist is really asking the question, who is fit to walk up that hill and abide with the person that's in that tent? And when we look at a text like this, that lays out all the requirements that suit that type of person, it can fill our hearts with fear. And so here's what I want to do this morning. What I want to do is look at them Each one, take each one, talk about them. What are the requirements? What are they saying to us? And finally, why we don't have to be afraid as we look at a text like this. So those are my points. What are the requirements? What are they telling us? Why do we not have to be afraid? All right, first, what are the requirements? Well, I'm going to work through these one at a time. But first, what's described here is a person who has what I want to call internal integrity. Internal integrity. Look at verse 2. It says... This person walks blamelessly and does what is right. They speak truth in their hearts. And so what it's telling us is that the external integrity of their lives is actually informed by an internal integrity of their own hearts that governs how they live in the world. And so there's coherence in this person's life between what they believe and the way that they live. Uh, We also see someone who is careful with the way that they use their words. This is very important. We see somebody who who is restrained with their speech. Verse 3 says, They do not slander with their tongue, nor take up reproach against their friend. To take up reproach could mean they they cast a slur, or they talk bad about their friend behind their back. This is the kind of person... Uh, that you would want to have as a friend because they're very honoring to you in the way they talk about you when you're not around. 
And this person doesn't say everything that's on their mind. They don't feel entitled to all their criticism, and they're very careful about possibly spreading dissension or division amongst the ranks. They're thoughtful with how they speak, when they speak, and what they choose to speak to. And when we look at the Bible, we, we know that, that words are, the words we use are just very, very important to God. There are many different places uh, throughout the Bible where this is spoken to, but the one that I kept thinking about while looking at this is the scene where Isaiah is given a glimpse of, uh, of God's throne room. He's shown a vision of God, and, and the way he responded to that was very interesting. He himself recognized all the ways that he was unfit to be in the very presence of God, and what did he say? He said, woe. For I am a man of unclean lips. And it's fascinating to me that when Isaiah was convicted of the way sin is in his heart, he thought about the words that he used. And so a blameless person is careful with the way that they speak. They're careful, thoughtful, and wise about the ways that they choose to use their words. They're also wise. They, have a, they also possess a wise moral compass. So you see this in verse 4. We see someone who has a wise moral compass. It says, In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but honors those who fear the Lord. What this is describing is a person for whom there's no ambiguity about what evil is. They're not attracted to it, but they actually see it for what it is uh, plainly. And, and, and they see, we see this in the way they think about the promises that they make. It says he swears to his own hurt and does not change. That's kind of curious language. But what that means is that when they make a vow or make a promise, they honor that promise even if they realize sometime later that it's going to cost them deeply. That there's a strong moral compass that helps them honor their words and uh, that, that despises evil for what it is and promotes holiness, honors goodness, even at their own expense. That's what it's describing here. And then finally, we see that this person cares for those around them because they do not put out their money at interest and they do not take a bribe against the innocent. This is not a verse that, that, uh, that's against, you know, taking out a car loan or a mortgage or something like that. This is about, um, this isn't about banks. This is about when we see people in need around us. It could be a friend or a neighbor or even an enemy or a business partner or a rival or whatever. But that when we see somebody in financial woe, we might lend them money and not expect interest as they pay it back to us. What they're saying is that this is somebody who doesn't profit off the financial woes of those around them. And, and doesn't take bribes. It doesn't seek their own personal gain at somebody else's expense. That the blameless one actually looks to care for those around them. Seeks to use what they have and gives generously. And so those are the requirements. What's the result of this requirement? It's in uh, verse 5. It says, he who does these things shall never be moved. Each of these is given to us as a picture of the rooted, blameless life that is fit to abide with God. That's what's described in this psalm. And one of the things I want you to see as we look at this passage is that it is telling us the awesome responsibility of stewarding a life to live. Because it's telling you that the things you do matter. It's telling you that the words that you use matter. 
It's telling you that the thoughts that you think have a very, have a very real implication for the way that you live. And so nurturing our inner being and our faith matters. And it's telling you that you operate, it can, it, I mean, often it can feel the opposite, but that you operate with real agency in the world. And, and the world around you is impacted by the things that you do. In fact, the Bible tells us that the way we live our life is extreme importance of God, uh, to God, because how we live in the world has the power to advance the kingdom of God. That, that God renews the world through his people. Think about it. Adam and Eve. The very, I'm going to come back to this story. But every, like, um, the, uh, Adam and Eve were set into the garden. And they were called to live a certain way. And they were called to be God's vice regents. Governing the garden in such a way. Caring for it in such a way that God would. And as they did. As they honored their call. The garden would flourish. And that commission has been repeated over and over again. It was the same for God's people as they were brought into the promised land. That they were supposed to be governing and ruling over the land and um, worshiping God and living with each other in such a way that would show God to their neighbors. And And then the land would flourish because of that. And so this is true. It's an amazing thought that somehow God decides... That he is going to renew his whole creation through his people. And you're a part of that. And this is just as true for us sitting here on the corner of 29th and 7th in Birmingham as it was for those in the ancient Near East. That how we live actually represents God to the world. We are the kingdom of priests. And, it, and somehow, for some reason, God uses such as us to make himself known to the world and renew all things. Now, just as much as that's amazing to comprehend, it's also an awesome responsibility, isn't it? Like, that can feel weighty. You, Jesus' people, are plan A, and there's no plan B. Now, that's a heavy weight attached to our living out the holiness described in this passage, isn't it? In fact, it can feel like something that we're totally unprepared for. And it was 1953. Queen Elizabeth was 25 years old when she acceded to the throne. Her father died. She was the next in line. And a lot of people were speculating about what that was going to look like. Like, how could somebody so young... How would they handle all the responsibilities that were put on her? And so there was all this public speculation. But C.S. Lewis actually drew a different connection as he commented on it. He said, the pressing of that huge heavy crown on that small young head becomes a sort of symbol of the situation of humanity itself. Humanity called by God to be his vice regent and high priest on earth, yet feeling so inadequate. And I don't know about you, but inadequacy is what comes through here for me. Like when you, that's the feeling I get when I read this psalm and think about the life that I'm called to, maybe you do too. 
And when we think about what these requirements are telling us, that's perhaps the first thing that comes through, is that I am inadequate to be in God's presence. When you look at the sum of my thoughts, I don't think I'm alone here. But when you look at the sum of our thoughts, when you look at the sum of our desires for ourselves and for other people, when you size up our willingness to rationalize away sin, I mean, I can justify, (laughs) we can find ways to justify anything. And it calls us to account because these requirements search the heart, don't they? They expose, in fact, they expose the heart. And it tells us that God is after our hearts. And it, is, it exposes something about the inadequacies of our heart that can just be hard to bear. In fact, I, I would think that the inadequacy of this, I don't know what it is about illustrations from London, but I got another one for you. This is from the Hendon Police College in North London. I've never actually been to London, but here we go. There's a story about a young police officer who's taking his final exam uh, 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 at the police college, and he came to this question. I'm going to read it to you. It, it, It says, you are on patrol in London when an explosion occurs in a gas main in a nearby street. On investigation, you find that a large hole has been blown in the footpath, and there is an overturned van lying nearby. Inside the van, there is a strong smell of alcohol. Both occupants, a man and a woman, are injured. A passing motorist stops to offer you assistance, and you realize that he is a man who's wanted for a series of violent armed robberies. And just at that moment, a man runs from a nearby house shouting that his wife is expecting a baby and that the shock of the explosion has made the birth imminent. Another man is crying for help, having been thrown into an adjacent canal by the explosion, and he cannot swim. Bearing in mind the provisions of the Mental Health Act, describe in a few words what actions you would take. And as the story goes, the young man thought for a second. He picked up his pen and wrote, I would take off my uniform and mingle with the crowd. (laughs) And boy, that's the impulse, isn't it? When we're faced with inadequacy, uh, when our hearts are exposed, when life feels too big for us, it's very tempting to take off our uniform and blend in with the crowd. It is very tempting to hide. Hiding is what we do. That's a story as old as time. Adam and Eve, and after the first sin, God came looking for them in the morning, and what were they doing? They were hiding in shame, and they covered themselves. And boy, that is what we do. And it'd be very tempting to read this psalm and think, I need to run and hide. Let me ask you something. Where do you hide? I mean, we all do it. Nobody's immune from this. But where do you go when you look to hide? Perhaps you go to work to hide from home. Or maybe you go home to hide from the responsibilities at work. Sometimes I like to disappear. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with this at any time. But sometimes I like to hide in front of a TV show. 
allows me to escape the feelings of responsibility in my life, that's a place I'll go to hide. But where do you hide? And why do you do it? Usually it's because we're ashamed, we feel exposed, and we're afraid. Let me tell you something. You don't need to be afraid. You have no reason to fear Because Jesus died for every inadequacy of the heart that's exposed in this psalm. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. There is nothing that's exposed in your heart or in your life that can't be reconciled at the foot of the cross. Because Jesus is the blameless one. This psalm describes him. And he's the only one that can fit this description. And the blameless one died for the guilty ones. The one in whom no deceit was found in his mouth died for liars like you and me. The one who lived with perfect wisdom died for foolish ones like you and me. The one who gave his life for those who were less than him died for the selfish ones like you and me. And we don't have to be afraid because this is a description of the one who went before us and somehow the miracle of it all by faith is that when God looks at you because you belong to Jesus, this is a description of what he sees. He sees you in Jesus' righteous robes. So you become blameless. And that's not all. The Holy Spirit begins the incredible work of turning you into this person at the same time. That we become what we're declared to be. And don't you want to be this person? I mean, if we can get past to just feeling the ways that we're exposed by this, we actually think that we would want to know this person. In fact, we would want to be this person. Don't you want to be this kind of friend that people trust and come to? Don't you want to be the, some, that, that person that speaks with wisdom in the room, that, 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 uh, that isn't drawn to things that are evil? Don't we want to be this person? Well, here's the promise that's given to you, is this is a description about the person that you're becoming. Because you're renewed day after day, every day, in the image of the one who saves you. And that's the miracle of the gospel for you. You don't need to be afraid to read this. Because when you do, you're reading a description of your Savior. You're reading a description of what God sees when he looks at you. And you're reading a description of the type of person you're becoming. And you may feel far away from that right now. That's okay. You won't. You will not remain there. It's just a matter of time. Because of the work of the Holy Spirit, this is truer than gravity. This is who you will be. Alistair Begg tells this great story. He's a great Scottish pastor. Uh, he's ministering in, I think it's Cleveland. It might be Cincinnati, but he's in Cleveland. But he tells a story that just brings tear to my, tears to my eyes. Some of you probably already know what I'm going to say. Uh, but uh, every time I listen to it. But, but he speculates about what it must have been like for the thief who died right next to Jesus on the cross. Uh, and it's fantastic. He just, 
Um, you know, the, the, the one who uh, Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. And he, he just, this pastor just wonders, how must that have gone for this guy? <laughs> like, he didn't know Jesus. Just minutes ago, he was like cussing the guy with his friends. And now he's belonging to him in heaven. He didn't know who Jesus was. He didn't know what God's word looked like. He'd never been baptized or became a member of a church. And then he comes to heaven. Like, what must that have looked like? And an angel comes to him and says, what are you doing here? And he says, I, I, don't, I don't know what I'm doing here. The guy says, what, what, no, what are you doing here? He says, I don't know what I'm doing here. So the angel looks at him and says, I need to go get my supervisor. And the supervisor angel comes and says, what are you doing here? And he says, I don't know. And so they begin to quiz him on what he knows. And he says, are you clear on your jo- do- doctrine of justification by faith? Do you know what that means? And he says, I have no idea what that means. And he says, okay, well, let's go right to the doctrine of Scripture. Do you know what the doctrine of Scripture is? And the guy's just staring back at him. And the angel looks at him and he says, on what basis do you think you belong here? And the man says, the man on the middle cross told me I could come. That is the only answer that says you belong with Jesus. All the promises find their resolution at the foot of the cross. It's the best answer. And you know what? It's your answer. It's your answer forever. So the next time some weird dude in a suit, whether it's in your head or anywhere else, comes to you and asks you why you belong with God. That's your answer. The man in the cross, the man on the middle cross told me I could come. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Oh, what hope is bound up in knowing you. Oh, Lord Jesus, our King, our Savior, the one who calls us a friend, our rock and our redeemer. Our hearts are filled with gratefulness as we consider these truths. Would you be with us now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.